So you can open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verse 39 through 43. Now, uh, just to introduce myself a little bit, uh, I'm not a real pastor, I'm just an outreach pastor, okay? So, uh, <laughs> some people, you know, when I was a youth pastor, they'd say, when are you going to be a real pastor? But nobody's said that to me since I've been an outreach pastor. Maybe just because I'm older and getting some gray hairs, they figure I'm a little more mature. Or maybe it's because of the reputation of youth pastors, I don't know. So, uh, so, so that's what I am, an outreach pastor. I've been an outreach pastor, uh, the outreach pastor at Kishwaukee Bible Church for about, uh, what's it been, going on two years now. Um, and I've learned so much. I've learned so much just in the process. Um, as an outreach pastor, I've seen more than ever the power of the cross to change. The power of cross to change. Now, if you would have asked me that before, I would have said yes. I would have pounded the pulpit and said the cross, the power of the cross is that it changes us. The message of the cross changes us as we observe it. But the, the, more, the, the more I have operated in the role of outreach pastor, I've had, for instance, uh, a number of opportunities on the campus at Northern Illinois University, especially with international students. That's where I've kind of focused my efforts. So as well as doing outreach training, evangelism training, one-on-one training, and other things like that, I've been able to get on the, on the campus much, much, much more and uh, been able to especially talk to folks from other cultures and other religions. In fact, um, it's a joy. In fact, Steve Brandon and Steve Belanger going to Nepal is a real answered prayer of mine about... Three years ago, I befriended a, a man on campus. In fact, he's been here once. Some of you met him. His name's Mohan, and he's from Nepal. And so we've been praying for Nepal for a few years. So to see them go, it's a real answer to prayer. So uh, our heart's with them as they go too. But, uh, but I've noticed, I've, I have noticed more and more as, I've, if I've, as I have encountered people from other religions, other thoughts, other philosophies, other cultures, other races, other tongues, uh, still, more than ever, I believe in the power of the cross to change, that it is the thing that we need to look to. You know, in my late teens, my good friend and I, Mike, we were high school buddies. We got tickets to uh, Cincinnati Bengals, Philadelphia Eagles game, okay? We grew up in Cincinnati, and we were big Bengals fans, unfortunately. Well, wandering around the stadium, once we got into the stadium before the game, we made our way, as you know, we're teenagers, we're just kind of wandering around, we're there on our own. We made our way into the bowels of the large complex, uh, what was Riverfront Stadium. Somehow we found ourselves, as we got down there, uh, mixed in with the high school bands, okay? We didn't play instruments and we weren't dressed appropriately, but, you know, they have their whole entourage, so we just kind of milled around there. We looked like high schoolers, and as the band then went out onto the field, we went out with them. This was before the game. They're just marching to take their seats. So there we were, two, two kids in our late teens, found ourselves before an NFL football game, wandering on the sidelines. And it was, it was marvelous. We loved it. We followed them in. Uh, before we knew it, we were sitting on the tarp just behind the Philadelphia Eagles bench. And uh, we remember it because both of us, when we talk about it to this day, we, we couldn't believe how big Harold Carmichael was. He was a wide receiver for the Eagles. And we're just, these guys were giants to us. But there we were behind the Eagles bench, and both of us can recall the memories that we have from there. Now, everything that happened on the field, this is what's interesting, everything that happened on the field near the benches was no different than what you would, you would have seen uh, from far away in the stands or maybe watching on your television set sitting up in the stadium or at home. But the sheer, the, the thrill that we had came afterwards when all of our friends, we, of course, we had to tell them about it, right? What good is doing something like that unless you can go and boast about it, right? So that's what we did. And all of our friends would ask us things like, what did you see? 
even if they had seen the game, even if they had watched the game. What did you see? What was it like? How exciting was it? And so on and so on. And both of us realized that, that though uh, we saw the same game that other people saw, that because we had better than front row seats, we had information that was a premium, and we had things that they wanted to know about. And we realized that then. Well, I think about that as I approach this passage, because the greatest event in Christianity was the cross. How can I say that? Well, Paul said if he was going to boast in one thing, it would be in the cross and the cross alone. What happened there, right? As we approach Easter now, we celebrate the greatest event in the history of mankind. The apostles had front row seats, right? Some of them were right there, right at the cross, watching what happened. But there was someone who had better than front row seats. And who was that? Well, that someone was one of the thieves on the cross. This man saw more. This someone was the thief, as I said, that Jesus spoke to. He saw clearly, he saw up close, and he was changed by what he saw. In his experience, and even his words are recorded for us here. What we see through his eyes, his experience, is that Easter is powerful to change. As I said at the beginning, I've, I've, I've noticed through my conversations, especially with those who come from different philosophies, different religions, and are not Christians, that Easter, that message of the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you know, so easy in conversation with unbelievers, isn't it? Just to get so sidetracked. Or what about abortion? Or what about, you know, some political issue or agenda? What about the war? You know, other things like that. It's so easy to get sidetracked. But I've found, I've found, and I'm always zealous to go right to the cross. And it's amazing the power that it has. I go into the jail once a month also. And we always come back to the message of the cross in our chapel services there. And the men are moved by it. But here what we have is we have a man, a thief, who had front row seats. And through him, through his experience, through his words, we especially get an up-close clear view of how the cross is powerful to change. And I want you to notice four things here, and they're in your notes. Four things about this man that were changed as we look here. So what I'm going to do is we're going to look just three things this morning. Three things. One, look at this man's, uh, make observations about this man. I'm going to share with you as we go along some conversations I've had and some conversations I've overheard uh, that uh, with unbelievers or those who are considering the cross or God for the first time. And then at the end of this time, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Okay, Appropriate to do so. But the cross is powerful to change. That's why I've called it Easter for a change. As you consider Easter, you will be changed. The first thing that it's powerful to change in this man on the cross, as we see here, is that it took him from foolishness to fear, from a foolishness to a fear of God. Kids, you can fill in the blanks appropriately there. Adults, you can follow along. Look there. Let me read verse 39 again. And one of the criminals, of course, continued in his rebellion, who were hanged there and was saying, hey, if you're the Messiah, the cross, the promised one, save yourself. And by the way, more importantly, save us. If you go down, maybe you can take us with you. But the other answered, rebuking him. Something had happened to this man who was probably a lifetime thief. Something had happened to him as he observed. 
He was rebuking him and he said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Do you not even fear God? For all intents and purposes, even the thief that said this had lived a life without the fear of God, right? Of course. He was a thief. He had stole. As, as, a, as a Jewish man, he would have known. He would have known. He would not have been ignorant that it was against God's laws to steal. So he was a man who did not fear God. And as the proverb says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what, what he had done is said, well, I know God's, God's there, but uh, his, his rules, uh, I don't think they're important. I'm not going to follow them. For, so for all intents and purposes, he became a practical atheist. And we know he was a fool, therefore, as, as Proverbs says. Now, he had been a fool, but his front row seat gave him pause. It was as if some, something woke up in him. You ever had one of those moments in your life when you're doing something, going down a path, you know, and you stop and you go, what in the world am I doing? Maybe people have been telling you all along, but like the light bulb goes on. Well, the light bulb went on for the thief here. He says, do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence? It's like something woke up in him. Man, I am at the point of death. I ought to begin fearing God. And so he rebukes the other man and tells him that he, he should do. He should also. What in tarnation am I doing? I'm about ready to die and, I've, and, I, and have I even thought about eternity? Proverbs also says that wisdom is what? The beginning of the fear of the God. I'm, fear of God. I'm sorry. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I got that backwards. If it's if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God is also the beginning of change. Because wisdom is skill for practical living. If you're going to change in your life, it begins with the fear of God. It begins by that light bulb moment saying, "What am I doing? I've been ignoring God all along." You could be coming to church all along too and still be ignoring God. And maybe you'll have that moment. Well, as the thief sat there and he watched these events unfold, a fear of God came in his heart. In the end, when it matters, atheism is seen for what it is, foolishness. This man was facing death and all of a sudden his, his refusal to acknowledge God was seen by him as foolishness. You know, I've been presently surprised at how often atheists bring up God. You ever notice that? All these conversations, I have a lot of friends on campus that are atheists. And it's amazing how many of them want to bring up God. They know I'm a pastor. They know I'm a religious guy. So immediately they bring up God. And I usually say, hey, you brought up the subject. Let's talk. And they like to talk about God. In a conversation I had on campus at NIU recently, it happened again. Religion is the opiate of the people, my college friend said to me. I've heard that before. Karl Marx, I chuckled to him and said back to him. He gave me an affirmative nod of his head, uh, yet surprised look, as if to say, I didn't know Christians read. Right? They always look at you like that, like you're ignorant. And I said to him this. Let me relate this conversation to you. I said, what you mean is that you think religion is only turned to as an anesthetic, a drug to help us deal with pain and suffering. Is that what you mean? I said to my friend. Of course, he said. It's your way of coping. Okay, I'll grant you that. I looked back at him and said, Christianity does ease the pain. I'll admit that. But I'm just like you in that. What? He said, I have no religion. I do not believe in a God. And I said to him, and that's your opiate. Again, he stared at me, this time with a puzzled look. And so I said to him, continued in the conversation, anytime there's a puzzled look, that means go. 
Go for it, right? <laughs> if they pause, you speak. Learn that. I said to him, you have a conscience, right? Why an atheist would have a conscience? I don't know, but you have a conscience, right? Something that speaks to you that this is right and this is wrong. And he reluctantly agreed. He said, yeah, of course. And you often do the wrong, correct? He couldn't deny it, and he said, of course, again. So your mind looks for a way to ease the guilt you feel and absolve you from the consequence for your wrongdoing. The way you have chosen to do that is to deny that there is a supreme moral being and judge. If there is no judge, your mind tries to reason, then I should feel no painful guilt. Thus, atheism becomes the opiate of the people, of you. Atheism is your drug of choice, your anesthetic. He didn't like what I was saying, so I quickly continued again. I said to him, so we have both chosen a way to deal with the pain of this world, but my medicine is better than yours. How can you say that, he said. Say you were suffering from a disease, I went on, and a doctor presented you with two choices of medicine. The first was just morphine, a painkiller, but the second was a new medicine that proved not only to numb the pain, but to kill the virus that was in you. Which of these would you choose? He couldn't deny with the blank look on his face that the answer was obvious. And he nodded. Well, the answer is obvious. I said, you've just chosen Christianity. Christ takes away some of the pain of the world, but more than that, he cures us as well. You see, the fear of God is the beginning of change, isn't it? And that foolishness in the end, if we just talk to them, foolishness, which is really what atheism or, or, or even agnosticism for that matter, foolishness in the end is seen for what it is. But this, this man, who had, who had, this thief who had refused God his life, he comes to this moment and he speaks of the fear of God in the face of death. People often do. Because atheism or refusing to acknowledge God is foolish and seen most foolish even when, especially when you're facing death. So the change in this man, first of all, the change in this man, the cross brought about, brought about a change from foolishness to fear of God. Maybe you've seen that in your own life. Maybe you, need some, maybe you know someone that needs to hear the message of Christ because you've seen they've just been foolish in their refusal to acknowledge God. The thief was changed by the Easter scene. But Easter can also change something else. Look at number two. It makes a change from lies to honesty about self. Look there what he says after this. He said, he said since in verse 40, uh, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence for condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You know what he's come to? He's come to finally at an, an acknowledgement, an honest acknowledgement about himself. Now, even if this man, this thief, had confessed already to his crime of stealing, we know that he had lived a lie to bring himself to steal, as we all do. Think about sin and how sin is just a lie. We lie to ourselves about what stealing is or whatever our particular sin is. We lie to ourselves. We convince ourselves, ah, this isn't really stealing. We lie to ourselves about God's view of the act and how serious he takes it. We lie to God about the nature of the act. We lie to God about the reality that it happened, right? We'll try to sweep it under a rug. And really life, that's why in the, in the, in the Bible it says all men are liars. As we pursue our sin, we're trying to, to, 
to lie about there being a God there, to lie about what we're doing, what our conscience is screaming at us. But this man, there was something at Easter, something at the cross here that brought him to say, you know what? We're being punished justly for what we've done. We are being punished justly. Now, that's a radical thing. I work with inmates and criminals. And to get them to say, uh, to get them to say that what is being done to me is just, I've never heard an inmate say that. Now, they may say they did this particular thing, but they're treating me and they're, you know, they're messing it up. This man comes boldface and to see this, to, to see that in a, in a criminal is amazing. He's changed from a life of lies to an honesty about himself. But again, the Easter event brought this change. He now became honest about himself. He sets himself up honestly before God. You can try to deny sin, but you've got to be honest eventually, hopefully. Conversation I heard of. Art and Joan were followers of Mary Baker Eddy's writings, what they call Christian science. As a Christian scientist, as Christian scientists, we believe that there is no such thing as sickness. Art started off in the conversation in his living room over dessert. I know that sounds strange to you, but you see, I even get disturbed when I hear an aspirin commercial. He was a true Christian scientist. Art finished the whipped cream topping on his dessert, and he went on to say this, Everything is good. Evil is non-existent. The belief in sin must be abolished. Man should realize what he is. There is no death. There is no hell. Heaven fills all. The Christ spirit ever lives on. God is all in all. It was coming out like information that had been fed into a computer without errors, his version, as the person who tells the story. And along with it came a tolerance of what others believe, a permissiveness, very common today. After all, it was not a life or death, heaven or hell issue to, the, to art because he didn't believe in those. So now the, the Christian in this conversation says this, I now tried another avenue. Have you ever heard that Mary Baker Eddy is supposed to have worn glasses and false teeth? I don't believe it, they both cried out. That isn't true. Did you know she is supposed to have used drugs on occasion? Who would tell such lies? Art said. Where did you hear this? Someone is being unkind. What if I showed you, the Christian said, a picture of her wearing glasses? It would be touched up, a touched-up photograph, they said. All right, let me go along with you. Suppose these are all lies. I did not bring up the subject to be unkind, the Christian said, or vindictive. I want to make quite another point. Don't you agree that such insinuations, if they are not true, are wrong, evil, unkind, as you say? Of course they are, they both replied. Then how can you affirm there is no evil in the world, no sin in man? How is it possible to say that we are all God's perfect children when these children viciously attack and hate? Art and Jones sat quietly and they were very uncomfortable. You see, the truth wins out at the end. All you have to do is observe real life, right? All you have to do is to see and be honest about what is really out there. And Art and Joan had chosen a philosophy, but it was full of lies. Mostly because, you see, that it can, even themselves they see wicked and unkind people. A lie is not the removal of truth, but the vain attempt to hide it temporarily for our own convenience, right? That's what it is. 
It is always still there. The truth is always still there. And it will sprout. The change that this brought was, first of all, the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the first step of wisdom is honesty about yourself, right? This is brought about change. That's why I love to share the cross with people. It talks about, and it's able to change, take from foolishness to a fear of God, from a life of lies to, a, to an utter honesty about yourself. And so that we see it in the criminal, the thief here. We see it. We indeed justly receiving what we deserve for our deeds. We're getting, we're getting what we asked for. We should have expected it. That was the second change. The third change that it brings about is a change from ignorance to faith in Jesus. From foolishness to fear, from lies to honesty, and now from ignorance to faith in Christ. As I mentioned, I go to the jail for chapel ministry. There's no doubt that I've learned much there. I I truly, truly, folks, have learned to love these people. I have to admit, and I've said this before, that when I went in, I I think I went in with kind of a, a proud attitude. But I've really seen that God is working marvelously in these inmates. It's like a whole culture that uh, we need missionaries to go there, too. And they have their own way of speaking. They have their own values of their culture. And, uh, and, and yet God is really working in the, in the prison ministries and jail ministries. I truly love these men and women. But all that to say, as I say that, there are two undeniable truths in the jail. One is this. The most innocent people in the world are in our jails and prisons. Just ask them. They'll tell you. <laughs> I, I ain't done nothing. they've been wronged they've been wronged and they've done nothing the second is this that the very best solutions to the world's problems can be found in their small circles in their cells they've got all the answers right so one they've done nothing wrong and two if everybody would just ask them they could solve the world's problems that's true that's true most of my conversations with them are like that In fact, the sign that God is really working in one of the inmates' life is a humility, is a humility. That's one of the first signs. Now, put these together, and what is it? The man, now, the man, you know who the man is, right? The man is government or the big person, the guy who's in a position of power, and they call him the man. Oh, the man did this to me, okay? When I first heard that, I said, what man? But it's the man, the authorities, whether it be anyone from the security guards to the the judge or just the man in charge. And they'll say, so put these two undeniable truths together and it goes like this. The man has wronged me and if I just had a chance, I could put it right. Everything right. That's a basic attitude. You know what? These two beliefs are exactly their problems. And they were the problems with the thieves. How do I say that? Well, you look at the two things. I'm going to pull two things out and kind of take them out of order a little bit. Um, Actually, no. Look what he says. Uh, We'll go in order. He says in verse 41, at the end of verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then look at verse 42 because we're going to take these together. Now, he, he makes a request there. We're going to look at this in a little bit. But I want you to look at something else. These are observations that we make about what this man, what this thief believed. First of all, this man has done nothing wrong as he's looking at Jesus. And then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me. Then look at this. When you come in your kingdom. 
There were some things that you may just read by this, but there were some profound, deep things this man believed, right? And maybe it just came to belief in it. I don't know. But they are this. First of all, some recognition, actually I have three things, that Jesus is the man, okay? In this sense of the authority. Why do I say that? Because he speaks of Jesus having a kingdom, okay? So there's a belief that Jesus is, is, is the man, as the inmate would call him, or the authority, the king, the one in charge, okay? Secondly, the man has done nothing wrong, all right? Again, remember, they, inmates, criminals, usually think, oh, I've been wronged by the man. Well, here, this, this thief looks at this authority figure, this king, and says, the king is not wrong. The king is not wrong. The king is right. He's done nothing wrong. And then thirdly, another thing he says, and, and again, just by way, way of observation, you may just pass by this, but he says... When you come, stop there. Now, wait a minute. The thief can look over and see Jesus dying on the cross. But he speaks of, of something that speaks of a deep faith in him about Jesus somehow overcoming death. Right? It's amazing. Just in that short, these short sentences, we see that this man in the cross, as he observes this, and, and God's work in this man's life takes him from ignorance to a faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the king, that Jesus, that Jesus has done nothing wrong, that he's in control and it's all right, it's, it's us that have done wrong, and that only he, I'll say this third thing, only he can make it right, because he's the one who will conquer death. And he was the one that not only will conquer death, but there's another doctrine, teaching that this man already believes. It's amazing what this thief believed just by observing his simple uh, words here. He believes that he's coming back, right? When you come in your kingdom, the king is going to make things right. Amazing. Jesus is... Think about all the things he believes about Jesus in these words. Jesus is righteous. Jesus has done no man wrong. He's just. Jesus is therefore good. Jesus is king. Jesus beats death. And in beating death, he must beat sin. Jesus would return to make things right in this world. So Jesus is Lord over all. He's king over all. He's savior of all. It's amazing just by these words what we see that this man is amazing. The power, the power of the cross to bring about faith. And God obviously had been working in this man perhaps up to this point. He's facing death and he's brought to faith in Jesus Christ as we see just by his words. It's amazing, isn't it? To think about all these things and what this man... And not only that, I didn't put this change in the man, in the thief, but the thief, this is a freebie, okay? It's not in your notes. He becomes an evangelist too. He's already sharing his faith because he's looking over at the other thief and saying, what are you doing? and declares all these things. That's such a powerful, powerful illustration of the power of Easter to change. This man had not just been changed internally, it was expressing itself externally. And there you have it. That's the change in the thief. Even though a criminal. Even though a criminal. Powerful to change. You know, you ever... I bet each of you, if I ask you this question, think of one person you know of, maybe an acquaintance, maybe it's a good friend, maybe it's a very close friend, that you think could never be changed and become a Christian. All of us have them. I have them. 
I guess I remember especially when I was going to Ohio State, living on the dorm floor. Man, there was a whole rack of guys that I thought, man, no, check that guy up, no way that guy. They were so deep in their sin and their philosophies of life, whatever it may be. Some of them may have been intellectuals. Some, some of them just may have been hedonists. And it's amazing over the years, my years at Ohio State, seeing some of those people change and come to Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? We have those in, in our lives, and God's brought them to our lives. And you know what? If God can change a man in the last moment who's a lifetime criminal being put to death what he did, and yet in a moment and an instant, he's changed, and you see radical change. see radical change. You see, a, you see radical change also in his... He gives a request. Number four here, right? From complaints to requests for help. I think about my children. I know they've got the right attitude, okay? There may be a problem. It's not the problem that's the problem, right? (laughs) It's never the problem that's the problem. Some circumstance or situation or something got broke or they didn't get as much food as the other or whatever it may be, right? The problem is always how they respond and what they say about the problem, right? That's always the problem. This man went from complaints, typically, to requests. If you're not requesting help, you're probably complaining. He says here, look here, he says, remember Jesus, remember me. Isn't it amazing that's his only prayer at the end of his life? Remember me. Not Jesus, I screwed things up with my family. Can you make sure God goes back and changes all that? I mean, you have the, may have those desires. Or God, Jesus, if you could really get me down from here, <laughs> that, yeah, that would be great. No, it's remember me. Remember me. And so much is in that. Two words in our English that make up this request. Yet they're so powerful, they overcome his foolishness. Think about it. They overcome his foolishness. They overcome his lies. They overcome his ignorance. And they overcome... All the words he would have said up to this point that fell short of making requests for help. You see? Two small words, but one big leap for a man. Trusting in one who saves instead of trusting in something else. If he was a typical criminal, they spend all their time, I've seen, complaining, unless God does a work in them. That's how I see the difference in the inmates in the jail. I go, some of them request, you know what, could you pray for me, Pastor, that God would help me? Others, I'm not here justly. You haven't, and they'll say this to me as a pastor, I don't know who they think I am. You need to talk to the judge for me. <laughs> well, I can talk to one judge for you, but as far as those ones across the street, I can't talk to them. If it's amazing, the, the, the contrast. They're either requesting hey, pastor, ask God to help me. Or they're complaining. The absence of requesting help is often filled with complaint. I sat with Mr. and Mrs. Jones from Malta, small town near DeKalb. I sat with Mr. and Mrs. Jones at their kitchen table just a few months ago. We've had, we had a lot of laughs together. We've had talks of eternity together. Between sips of coffee, I poured out a question to the two retirees. I said this to them, asked them this. What do you struggle with most as you think about God? 
They both sat quietly and contemplated that one for a moment. A few weeks prior, I had shared the Two Ways to Live gospel presentation with them. The first time they had heard the gospel in a real clear presentation, although they had gone to church, grown up in churches, both of them, although they had strayed away from it. So I shared the Two Ways to Live gospel presentation with them at this time, at that very same table uh, a week or so before, drinking from the very same pot of coffee. But I had asked them that question. What do you struggle with most as you think about God? After a little bit of quiet, Mrs. Jones said this, one word, guilt, guilt. I said, guilt, why? She said, yes, I struggle with guilt every day. See, my mother is in a nursing home. I try to go, go and see her every day. But I'm ashamed to admit some days, well, some days I, I just don't feel like going to see her. I usually still go. I'm usually still there every day. I do miss once in a while, but I feel terrible guilt from not wanting to go. The difficulty of that. I said to her, well, what should you do about that? What do you think you should do about that? I want to stop the conversation here for a second and say my question was more about than just about how Mrs. Jones will get through her day. I want you to see this. It was, it was about more than just how Mrs. Jones will get through her life. It was really about how Mrs. Jones would get through eternity because I wanted to see how she would express dealing with her guilt. What would she be depending on? See, I know that most of us spend a large portion of our time trying to ease our guilt. If you're honest, I'll bet you do, even as Christians, even as Christians. There are a number of popular answers as to how to do that. Ignore it the best you can. Try harder justification of your actions, isolation from others. Often people do that because they see others and it makes them feel guilty. Now, none of these work, however, and none of these deal with the eternal issues, do they? What was Mrs. Jones's answer? She said this, kind of slowly, bless her heart. I guess all I can do, I guess all I can do, she started again, is trust in Jesus's promises. Emotions welled up within me. She said, I guess all I can do is trust in Jesus' promises that he died for my wrongdoing, has forgiven me, and loves me. I said, yes, that's right. Notice Mrs. Jones did not argue with guilt. We spend way too much time, folks, arguing with guilt (laughs) instead of just admitting it. Remember Josh McDowell said he said to someone, someone said to him once, I feel so guilty. And he said to him, you know why you feel guilty? You ever see Josh McDowell talk? He's got like a bundle of energy. You know why you feel guilty? I said, no. He said, because you are. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it? I appreciated hearing that. Whenever I think, when I'm feeling guilty, I find a mirror and I say, Don, it's because you are. Now deal with it. Don't argue with it. Mrs. Jones did not argue with guilt. That's what we all usually try to do, but we never win that, do we? We never win that argument. Mrs. Jones agreed with guilt's argument that she does wrong, but then she took it right to the cross, stamped it paid for, and said, that's what I can trust in. When it comes to Christianity, you may give intellectual, philosophical, sociological, religious, or political arguments, and you may win all of them, but you cannot win the argument with guilt. It's the hound of heaven, so to speak, that's after you. Guilt is not something with which we must argue. It's something with which we must be rescued from, right? 
That is why we Christians regularly come to the Lord's Supper like we're going to in a little bit, the Lord's Table, Communion. And here it's appropriate that we come to the Lord's Table because what do you do with your guilt? You bring it to the Lord's Table, right? To his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. In conclusion, though, I want us to see that that Mrs. Jones's words, trusting in the promises, you know what? It's all that the thief had. Look at, look at verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, all he got were words, okay? And he was content with it. The story ends after this in the sense. I mean, it goes on, they all die. But he says to him, truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. That's amazing. You talk about change. Today, and by the way, Jesus is on the cross. You know the two problems from the garden after sin? What were the two problems? A knowledge of evil, and secondly what? Kicked out of paradise. Right? And here on the cross, Jesus releases forgiveness for the problem of the knowledge of evil, and he turns to someone, and this was, is for our hearing, obviously, and says, you know what? Paradise is open because of what he's doing on the cross. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, if you were the guy who asked Jesus that, if you were the thief, hey, remember me when you come. What's he thinking? Oh, maybe I'll go into some soul sleep, or, or may, maybe I'll have to go and you know, pay for my sins afterwards, or, or maybe it'll be a long period. Who knows what's going to happen? And Jesus turns and looks at him and says, you know what? Today. Today, I haven't packed my bags. Right? Today. As Paul said, absent from the body is present with the Lord. You don't lose consciousness. You're just in a different place. That's amazing to think we're a heartbeat away from the presence of God. No soul sleep, no downtime, no purgatory, whatever it may be. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Today, you're with me in paradise. But he trusted in that promise. He trusted in that. I had another conversation this past winter with uh, a friend. I'll call him Eddie. He's an international student. He's Muslim. Uh, Recently, I had been helping him look for a car to purchase. We were now sharing a meal together. Donald, he said, he calls me Donald. He doesn't know why Americans shorten their names. He thinks they should keep their full names. I don't know. Donald, he said... I do not think anyone should spread their religion. That's what he said. Curious, I took the bait. Why not? He said, it's all about interpretation, isn't it? I mean, everyone has different interpretations. No one can really know. So whatever way you think you should live is the way you should live. And that's okay with God, or Allah, in his words. People have started wars in the name of God. The Bible is all about your interpretation. No one can agree. You cannot understand the Koran because you are not from that culture. That is the problem. That's an interesting thought, I said to him. It kind of makes me think of something, though. What's that, he said. I don't think I should help you look for that car that you want to purchase. Donald, what are you talking about? (laughs) He said. Well, to purchase a car means that you would like to drive, right? He said, yes. To drive means you will have to follow the rules, right? To follow the rules, you have to read and understand them. Now, that Secretary of State rule book is rather complicated. 
Not only that, they're always making up new ones and changing others. And have you seen the, the, the streets? Almost every one of them has a sign on it with some rule. And also, how could someone from another culture possibly understand rules in our country? And furthermore, don't you know people in the midst of road rage have killed others all in the name of Jesse White or whatever? <laughs> Donald, you are talking like a madman, he said. So then I said, so you're telling me billions of people can understand rules and principles enough that they can agree and not only agree, but agree so much that they literally bet their lives on it every day. Since he just stared back and did not argue, I went on. (laughs) So then I said to him, you agree to read the Bible with me? And we've had some great conversations. But the point being, people often say you can't understand it. These truths right here are very simple truths. You can sit down with very smart people. You can sit down with inmates in the jail. And I've found all of them, no matter who they are, if you open the Bible, you read a passage, you say, what does it say? Amazing, we understood it. Now the problem is the will, right? And submission and all that type of stuff. But to say that you can't understand it is hogwash. You can We understand rules and we live by them every day and we bet our lives on them. And we can bet our lives how much more so on this. The cross, the Easter message, the Lord's Supper, it communicates truth. What we do here when we celebrate together, we're communicating truth, aren't we? That's why it's important the kids here. You know, the kids are here. Passover meal, the children played one of the most important roles in that, right? They would ask the questions. Dad, why are we doing this? Remember from the stories in the Old Testament about the Passover meal. The kids here. See, kids can learn. The Lord's Supper is primarily a tool to teach us about the message of the cross, about the Easter message, and through that we come to know the grace of God and the mercy of God. We come to know what? Some truths like this. There is a God to be feared, and he can change from foolishness to fear. There is a problem to be faced, sin. He can make you honest about it. There is a faith that can begin and can grow in the person and work of Jesus. There are complaints that can be transformed into requests, to prayers, to supplications. God, remember me. Remember me. Bow your heads with me for a moment. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a little bit. I want you, in a sense, to take up a position of the thief that we've been speaking of. Consider the death of Christ. Do you fear God? It's the beginning. Are you honest about yourself, condition? Do you truly have a faith in Jesus Christ, that he's the king, that he's good, and he's taking care of the problem of death and sin? Any of you actually made request and trusted that he can answer that? Let me give you a moment of silence. Just talk to God on your own, you and God, right now, as we approach the Lord's Supper kicking off this Easter season, so to speak. Talk to him. Ask him to change you.